0: So if you've been with us, or if you haven't, I'll just give you a quick update. Um, where we're at, Paul has written this letter. We call it the book of Ephesians, the epistle of Ephesus. Um, there's various forms of what it is. It's just really this, in, in the Bible, It's we call it Ephesians. And it's a letter that Paul wrote while he was in jail. And this is for the seven churches along the path. I call it the Revelation Road. Uh, it's all the... You can see it in Revelation, all the churches that John talks about. And he's writing this letter to a brand new church. It's eight years. I keep saying eight. I think I did the math wrong. I think it's nine and a quarter. I know that probably doesn't matter to you, but I like to be right when I say things. So, It's a young church, and uh, it's a church compiled of Jewish people who are now Christians, Gentile people who are now Christians, and they're coming together and figuring out how to walk a Christian life with one another in a world that is turning on them. Uh, just for reference, if you're thinking Nero is coming to power in Rome, um, I call him the top five bad guy of all time, and uh, he's and the persecution is really going to start here in just the next couple of years. It's already happened to Paul; he's he's in jail, like I mentioned. And in the first part, in Ephesians 1, it's an introduction. He's so thankful for everybody, and then he talks about the adoption and how we are adopted into God's family, and that specifically is for the Gentile believers to know you don't have to be Jewish in order to be part of God's family. And that's also a reminder for us, maybe someone in here is Jewish, I don't know that, so I'm not picking on you or, or leaving you out or excluding you. But I would say 99.9, if not 100% of us are Gentiles. We're not Jewish. So we've been adopted into God's family. And it is for everybody, for those who put their trust in Jesus. And then after that, after he talks about the adoption, um, as we talked last week, Paul prays this beautiful prayer of trying to remind the people that they already have so much in Christ that you start from a position of power because you are in Christ. You've been adopted into his family. This theme of adoption will come over and over and over again as we work our way through Ephesians. And as he closes out that prayer, uh, just that, that thought that continued to reign over in this week from last week is, is his prayer is, and that's my prayer, that I think that's a prayer for all of us to pray for one another, is that we see ourselves the way that God sees us. In Christ, for those of us who put tr- our trust into Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we are no longer who we used to be. And then we turn the page, or if we were in the first century reading this, we scroll down further on the, on the parchment paper, and Paul begins to preach. And he presents the gospel. Ephesians 2 is such a beautiful, um, simple, but yet weighty. Uh, explanation of what the gospel is. And as we read these opening verses in Ephesians 2, we read, once you were dead. Um, I almost messed up in reading that because I had remember that New King James and NIV as a kid. In your transgressions, this one's disobedience. means the same thing. But perhaps different thoughts have come to your head depending on where you are at with the Lord. Even if I would suggest you've been walking with the Lord for many, many decades... Depending on where you're at in this moment in your life, different emotions and different feelings probably come up. And I would imagine that these are some of the same feelings that uh, the first century readers would read. So I just want to start and just consider real quick, what is the gospel and what the gospel is not? I think, at least for me as a pastor, it can be easy for me to assume that everybody knows the gospel. Everyone knows it. You go to church, you know it. You grew up in my house, you know it. Maybe that's not true. I know that um, as I was reading, John Stott, one of my favorite commentators on the Ephesians, he he said this: "It is a failure to recognize this gravity of the human condition, which explains people's naive faith in superficial remedies. A radical disease requires a radical remedy." So what is the gospel? What is the testimony of your salvation? Gospel means good news. It's a churchy word. It's a good word. It translates to good news. But up front, I just consider just the, the charge for you is will you take time this week to answer that question? What is your testimony? When was the last time you shared your testimony? When was the last time you wrote it out, you shared it? When, when was the last time you considered it? When was the last time you had to tell a five-year-old what a testimony is? When was the last time you shared your testimony? And, and for anyone in here this morning who doesn't have a testimony, meaning you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, I'm not leaving you out. Maybe your testimony this week is, today I accepted Christ. At the starting point, what Paul is trying to to focus in is we started, our starting point is we were separated from God. We were alienated from God because of our sin. We were enslaved to our sin, is what he describes it. To the devil, to this world, we were unable to save ourselves, and we deserved death and God's wrath, but God did something. He didn't just stand by, he didn't just wait in heaven, shaking his head and saying, "tis tis." He came and He saved us by sending His Son to take our place on the cross to reconcile us to pay for the sins, the sins that we could not pay for. He paid the price that we can never pay for. Hmm. He paid it by laying down His life. He took 100% of the wrath of God that we all deserved, and He lived a life that we could not live. And He came back from death, and He's now at the right hand of the Father. That's what we've read. And those who of us, followers of Christ, Christians, whatever language you want to use, put our trust away from ourselves, away from anything else, put our trust in Christ. It is a free gift. It is faith alone by grace alone. We confess our sins. We believe in Christ and we walk with him. But what is the gospel? I keep asking that question. I, I quickly presented the gospel. If, It depends on uh, the situation where I'm at, if it's uh, someone who's never heard of Jesus or someone who has, someone who's walked away, whatever, fill in the blank. It's some variation of that. But it's been my experience, to be honest with you, that some people who say they are followers or Christians, especially those who attend church, who've grown up in a Christian home, they explain the gospel in another way, which isn't the gospel, and I'm not talking about the people in the world. I'm not talking about um, the guy down the street. And last week I preached at the H Street Ministry. I talk about that. It's one of my very favorite things I get to do. I'm not exaggerating that. I, I have a heart for people who are without a home, who are nearly without a home, people who are addicted to drugs and all kinds of things, tormented. I love the 15 minutes I get to share the gospel, the good news, and encourage them and pray for them. But sometimes I I, I hear people's stories and it breaks my heart. Actually, everything breaks my heart, to be completely honest with you. But, but I'm not talking about those people and I'm not trying to put them in a separate category because we were all lost. We read that. But I'm talking about just people who know of Christ. There's usually four responses that I hear, to be completely honest. The gospel, and then I hear three other forms of the gospel. I I believe John Stott, I blame him for it. He does a good job of breaking it down, of talking about the responses people give, and I go back to Spurgeon, go back to several people, and And this has definitely been my experience. One of my things I get to do, if I haven't asked you, I probably, I hopefully will ask you, if I know that you're a follower of Christ, is tell me your testimony. And uh, one that is frequent here at Renew, excuse me, frequent at Renew, and I'm not picking on this at all, is they say something like this, I grew up in church. I came from a Christian home. I grew up and there isn't a time that I don't know of Christ. And up front, that is a great gift, 100%. And if you're sitting here this morning and think, oh, I didn't grow up with that, don't worry, there's hope. And that is a great gift. This is part of my testimony. I I grew up in the church. I had mentioned that uh, we went to every single VBS during the summer. I come to find out it was because it, my mom didn't want to hang out with us all summer long. So we went to the Lutheran VBS. We went to the Episcopalian VBS. We went to the Calvary Chapel VBS. We went to the Southern Baptist VBS. We went to, I mean, all the VBSs. Has anyone here ever gone to three different VBSs in one day? <laughs> you guys didn't grow up in Long Beach. I went to the morning one. Then there was a, the lunch one. And then there was a nighttime one. You think I'm exaggerating. I'm going to have my brother come and verify this. He's a (laughs) preacher. All these stories. That was me. We grew up. And you know what? For the longest time, I grew up in a Christian home. And I realized I loved the church, but I didn't love Jesus. I grew up without a father. So there was many men that that, uh, filled that role in various ways from the church. I loved the church. I love VBS. I love camp. I went to all the camps, all the VBSs, went to all that, and then sometime around late high school, I realized, hey, I don't know if I love Jesus. I mean, I I know him. I know I'm supposed to. But then that realization came that, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I heard one pastor say this, homes are not Christians, people are. So you can grow up in a home that knew Christ, your parents, your grandparents, great-grandparents. I know many of you don't even know the last time someone in a generation didn't know Christ as their Savior. That's wonderful. But also thinking that you're a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home is like growing up in a home full of doctors and thinking you're a doctor. Don't worry, let me operate on your knee. i seen my dad do it. Actually, I YouTubed it. You know, you're not, Right? So I call that testifying to their Christian heritage. Another thing that I hear, and I can't rank these in which one I hear the most, probably that first one is the, but somewhere the second and third one, they they rival each other. The second appeal, I call it, uh, is towards moralism. I asked someone, about their the gospel. They say that they're a Christian. And uh, if they're not saying about their Christian heritage, they're talking about, well, I'm a good person. Yep, I'm a good person. Well, I think I'm pretty good. I have done more good than bad. And then the, usually there's a list of things they no longer do. I don't do drugs anymore. I don't cuss anymore. Well, not as much anymore. I don't fill in the blank. I mean, I'm not at the top if you're, like, getting a list of, like, I'm not a Paul, but I'm not, you know, Hitler. So I'm, you know, above the 50% line, and I'm not kidding. These, these are actual things that I heard, and, but I'm a good person. I, I've cleaned myself up. I've done a lot of good things. Compare me to others? <laughs> Something along those lines and what you what you notice what i notice is that there's this theme of cleaning themselves up i once was this but now i'm this because i have done all these things the hero in the story is you not jesus and if you listen closely it is moralism i do more good than bad So the first one is Christian heritage, the second one is moralism, and the third one is an appeal to religion. And this is the sneaky one. I think they're all sneaky, actually. It goes something like this. While I go to church, I read the Bible. Pastor, do you know that I've read through the whole Bible before? I do Bible studies. I listen to Caleb. I help out at the church. I do VBS. <laughs> I've taken kids to camp, I've changed diapers in the nursery, I've all of these ceremony rituals rites whatever you want to call them. It is an appeal to all the things that you do for the church. I appreciated what Tim had said about the finances that that has cow on the thousand hills. He doesn't Need us to do things for him, but but sometimes their appeal of what the gospel is is here are all the things I do in the church. I I never miss a Sunday unless, you know. Now if you're sitting here, and you already know this, I I pray that the gospel never bores you. I have to be completely honest with you. When when I knew Ephesians two was coming, I was thinking, oh the gospel. I love the gospel. I hope. People don't get tired of hearing the gospel again in church, and touched on it two weeks ago a little bit. Um, you know, the well, we want more Greek or Hebrew, and then some of you are like, ah, you don't even say Hebrew right. You know, whatever it is, I want more up here. But you need actually what you have in here to hear. But really, what the gospel is is what, what I explain what Paul said here in the first three verses, going into four. The real gospel is laid out here, and it is through Christ, through Christ alone. And again, last week, we ended with Paul's beautiful prayer, and now Paul really begins to preach. And again, if, if one of those things that I said, you grew up in a church, you, you're a good person, uh, Christian— her- or you appeal to the religion, you, you showing up to church, um, all those things won't save you. It is Christ who saves you. And as Paul is going to go through and remind us what the gospel is, we have to remember he's writing to a church that they're believers. You know, under 10 years old church, they're, but they're believers. And he's pointing them to the gospel. So I would suggest pointing to the gospel a couple of weeks ago, I think it was two Sundays ago, we were in life group, the young adult life group, and someone asked me a question about how do I have hope, as we were talking about the hope that we have in Christ, and I told them, which I'm telling you now, I preach the gospel to myself about every day, and I know I've mentioned this before, and and you may have noticed if you've been here for any length, probably two Sundays at least, that I'm pretty robotic, and some of the things that I do, it keeps me focused, because I hold on to this pulpit so I don't storm up and down and, and I'm a fidgety person and now you're going to be looking for all the switches the and stuff, but I preach the gospel to myself because I need the gospel. I can't present the gospel if I don't believe in the gospel. I can't believe in the gospel unless I live out the gospel. So one of the things is I'm a, I, I, I pray, I am a human being, not a human doing. I am loved by Christ because of his love for me through Jesus Christ. I am not loved by my performance. And if you're interested in the rest of my gospel presentation, I will share that. But just considering what Paul is spelling out to believers as he's trying to say, step one, the gospel. Step one. It reminds me of John Wooden who was the basketball coach long, long ago for UCLA. And when he took, took over the program, they had such a losing record. And, and on his very first day of practice, he had all of the players take off their shoes and socks and he had them all sit on the bench. And he said, the first thing we're going to do gentlemen is learn how to put on your socks and people were like socks. So he had him. all right, put on your socks. And he did a sock inspection. Do you know how many players put their socks on a little cricket? And yeah, made him start over. All right, this is how you tie shoelaces. Double knot. They're not going to come off. Why? Because a sock that's not put on correctly will cause blisters. A shoe that's not tied properly will come off. Starting from the beginning. And this is really what Paul is saying. He's saying... Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You were spiritually dead, which in another way of saying it, you were diabolically living. Verse 1, once you were dead because of your disobedience or transgressions and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world obeying the devil, the commander and the powers of the unseen world. He is the smeared at work in your hearts of those who refuse to obey God. You see that? You were dead. That word dead means dead. It it it's it in the Greek it's paramanthea, which means falling down to death. It's like grab your heart and die. And over the years, I have heard the gospel for sin in a a lot of ways, and I've used this very illustration, and I've stopped using it, probably because I'm nitpicking a little bit. But maybe you've heard you were drowning in your sins in the middle of the water, and then God threw you a lifeline. Anyone hear that? Right? Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you understand, but you were dead in the water. You weren't, you weren't doggy paddling, keeping yourself afloat. You were dead. Spiritually, you were dead. Not sinking. Not simply loss. Not simply wrong. And all those are true, by the way. Paul uses those. We read those throughout the Bible to describe what we were before Christ. All true. But here in Ephesians 2, he, just, he wants to make sure that both Jew and Gentile believers know you both were dead. Everybody, when we're talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel, don't leave that part out that you were dead. It is hard to offer a remedy to people who don't know they are sick. People don't know they need life if they don't see that they're already dead. And that was my problem growing up in a Christian home. I didn't know I was dead. I'm sure, and I'm not picking on my pastor. I I mentioned no one can ever compare to that pastor. So if you want to know a great pastor, that was him. But he's already went home with Jesus. So you have to settle for second best everywhere you go. That's what I always tell everybody. A wonderful man who loved people, who loved the Lord, and presented the gospel. But for me, I thought I was just saved. I didn't know I was actually dead, dead. But you know, when before Christ, it's just that... something's not right there's something missing and i have tried to fill in that god-shaped hole in my heart with all of these things my christian home my my good ethics uh, serving the church it's not what he's saying here and that's what we when we talk about the gospel when we present the gospel when we share a testimony we have to make sure that we recognize as paul says we were dead we are falling away from the truth and righteousness. It's not just doing something wrong. It's failing to do what is right. And then he, he says, you used to live in sin. That word sin is, is hamati sin. And, and, and really, it is a... a um, everyone would have understood this, that whenever there was archery, the target... And there would be a judge way out, however far the target is. And when someone loosed an arrow, and wherever it hit, if it didn't hit the bullseye, the judge would raise his hand and say, sin, you missed the mark. Now, if, if the person shot the arrow and they missed by 20 yards, I mean, they missed everything. Sin. If they shot the arrow and they just by a fraction of a millimeter missed the bullseye, sin. Sin, no matter how wide you miss the mark, it's sin. That's this word that Paul is saying. He said, you have missed the mark, verse 2. You, you used to live by missing the mark. Live, he's talking about oh, the way that you, uh, your worldly desires, the way that you went on with your life. Just like the rest of the world, he says. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world or of the air, depending on your translation. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. You, know, you notice those three things that he says that before Christ, the way that you used to live, you used to live by the world standard, you used to live with the devil, you used to live in the flesh. The flesh means your lifestyle. You were dead. You were running away. You were no longer safe, is what he's saying. He's reminding the people of the gospel. And in verse 3, he says this. All of us used to live that way. Who? All of us. Not you. This is a game changer in the first century church. And I suggest that it's still a game changer today. Because in the first century church... The Jews would have been sitting there listening to this, thinking, yeah, Paul, get those Gentiles. That's what the Jewish Christians were thinking. We're God's chosen people. Let them have it. Give it to them. That's like whenever you hear a sermon and then you say, ooh, that's a good point. I hope my wife is listening. Right? Or you're reading through scripture and you're like, I have to send this to my kids because that's them. Right? Just wait until we get to Ephesians four when it talks about husband and wife. It covers both of you guys. Oh, and if you're single, yeah, you too. Don't worry, you're not free. But, it, but honestly, if, if you're sitting if you're ever sitting there and you're reading this, or you're hearing a message or you're podcasting whatever, and you're like, that's really good for that person back the truck up. It is for you first. See, again, I, I can't stress this enough. The Jewish people, for a long, long time, and you could read all through Acts, several years ago when we went through Acts, we would see this whole argument if a Gentile person had to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They argued about that. And for us, we're like, yeah, whatever. We're all Gentiles. But what happens if, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking that it's for somebody else The gospel has to start with you first. It has to change your heart and the way that you look at people. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But Paul drops the hammer, all of us. He includes himself. He also calls himself the chief of sinners. God used Paul because he was 100% against God. He was the smartest. He was the bravest. He was the best of the best on the wrong team. Now he's on God's team and everybody's like, oh, all of us? And he says, following the passionate desires and the inclination of our sinful nature or gratifying the cravings of our flesh, by our very nature, we are subject to God's anger just like everyone else. Or perhaps your translation says God's wrath. All the same thing. God is a just God. God is a loving God. God doesn't just say, oh, that's okay, you sinned. And he says, there's a price for your sin, but Jesus paid it. And what, what Paul is establishing here is that the anger or the wrath of God is for everyone who don't believe. I know some people in the world, I don't want to say especially now, as I've read through commentators and different sermons and, and, and just various historical documents about the Christian faith, what I'm tempted to say is, in our generation and our society now, people are totally opposed to Christ and they think that Christianity is so seclusive, so just a small group of people, in reality, Christ is for everyone. And I would—I really want to say this is, our generation believes that more than ever before, but as I'm reading, this has been true. Christians or the way have always been called Oh, your secret club but it's just not true we have to include ourselves in God's wrath and anger because we were again slaves to our own sin that's why in 1 John 4 chapter 4 verse 9 and 10 he also reiterates this God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to, to- take away our sins. It's, it's for all of us. See, up to this point, again, I can't stress this enough. The Jewish Christians could have listened to this first part of the letter and thought, this isn't for me. Wait until... When I, my responsibilities, wait until the works part, wait until the faithful acts part, not the gospel. I, we already have that. See, when, when Paul is talking about the sin, that, that word also that we're trapped or in our disobedience, um, it really means enslaved, that we've been enslaved by a different master is what he's talking about. In verse 3, all of us used to live that way Or we used to be enslaved in that way. And we were controlled. The flesh, that doesn't just mean the body. It also means just the self-centered human nature of the original sin that we're born with. And if you don't believe in original sin, here's your test. Hang out with a three-year-old. They'll steal your socks, your keys, and your wallet. And then when you ask them where it went, they're like, I don't know. Now, up front, I don't know any parent who taught their kid that. But they do that. If you're older than three, don't do that anymore. It's not cute, all right? But this is self-centeredness. Martin Luther, in his lectures to the Romans, I appreciate what he said. He said, our hearts are so encaved into ourselves where there's no heart anymore, no room for God. So don't you just feel great? Sin, 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 you big old sinners. But verse 4 the greatest line, but God. Depending on the translations that you read, there's 31 to 45 verses that says, but God. I know I've mentioned this before. If I was a good writer, I would write about the but gods in the Bible. But God And the very first but God that we read in the Bible is when the flood came. But God in his grace and his mercy saved Noah and his family. Then you can drop down to Joseph whenever he was um, mistreated by his brothers, Potiphar's wife, on and on and on. And it ends, he's second in command. You meant this for bad but God. And you see this over and over and over again. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, he was the one who wrote over 40 sermons on Ephesians 1. Said this about, but God. If you want to see the gospel in two simple words, turn to Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God. See, we were dead. I don't know... If this makes sense, I think it's very simple. When you're dead, you're dead. You can't help yourself. And here's the hope, the gospel. But God, verse 4, is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Amen. It's so easy to skip over that, especially if you've grown up in church. You hear this, but God, he's rich in mercy. He's gracious. Yes, I'm seated at the right hand of God. Or I'm seated with God. Jesus, his son, at the right hand of God. When Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that means court is in session. It's not he's sitting there to rest. He's sitting there to judge. And if you're there with him, what God the Father who will send his wrath and anger, what he sees in you is Christ. He raised us from the dead along with Christ. But why? Sometimes we ask why. Well, why did he do that? you're here this morning, you think, well, you, this sounds good for everybody else, but do you know all the bad that I have done? And my answer is no, I, I don't know all the bad that you've done. My response is, do you know all the bad that I've done? So why did God do this? He was bored, nothing else to do? No, verse 7 tells us, he did all this. He showed us this grace and mercy Verse seven, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. Verse eight, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. You see that? You see just from verse four to verse eight, We see mercy in verse four. We see grace in verse five. We see grace in verse seven. We see grace in verse eight. And why did he do this? So he can point to future ages of the example of his grace, his kindness to unite us with Christ. And in verse eight, and I think that for believers, this is hard. Even if we know this, even if we, can, even if we are saved, even if we have a good theology of the gospel, this next part is a hard part for us. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God, but I like credit. I like to get a paycheck at the end of the week or every two weeks or whenever you get paid. I like whenever I do the dishes for once a month that Natalie says, good job, honey. I like that. I like the one time that, you know, I take out the garbage without being asked and swing the bag around. Hey, everybody, I'm taking out the garbage. <laughs> hey, everybody, I wrote this sermon. I built this house. I bought this car. Look at my children I raised. Oh, not that one. That w- not this week. Yeah. <laughs> That one. I, I, I. And what does God say in verse eight? What does Paul say that God says? God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. You can't take credit for your salvation. It is a gift from God. He goes on and nine, verse nine. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. You notice he has to say it twice. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. It is not a reward for the good things we have done. So no one can boast about it. You notice that in the opening first 10 verses here, that Paul is pointing out the three different forms of the gospel, the fake gospels that I mentioned. I'll touch on that in a moment, but just be thinking about that and considering that. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. See, again, we, Paul includes himself. If there's someone that, you know, he's not quite quite Jesus, but man, if you write two-thirds of the New Testament, A plus, no, he includes himself in that. So none of us can boast about it. I just want to talk about boast or boasting here real quick. So the word boast that Paul uses is, is in, in Greek is kauhai mai. It's not kau, my, but And what that actually means is like a battle cry or modernized, like pump-up music. For those of you who play sports, you know when the coach comes in and gives this great pump-up, yeah, we can do it, men, no, we're 0 and 16. We're not going to do it. But yeah, you know. So, so this, is a, this is a term for a battle cry. This is a, a term for a military. So the people here would have heard this. And it actually, if you want to translate this kahamai, this, this uh, boasting, it actually means to glory on account of a thing or to glory in a thing which also means to bring glory to something. It's the same word when we say we glorify the Lord or glory to God. It's the same word, boast to God. It's battle cry to God. But the opposite of this is our ego. Nothing is more addictive than ego. Nothing is more addictive than feeding your ego Because this word, this glorify, we will always again bring glory to something or someone. Always. We will either get our power or encouragement from that thing that we glorify. That thing or the person that we put a spotlight on, the thing that we cheer for, the thing that we cry out. If it is not Christ, all the other things we glorify will not last. So when Paul uses this word boast, the original audience would have been thinking of people hyping themselves up for the battle. All throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, you see this again and again, like this motivational speech of this war cry. It's, we have the greatest king, King David. Yeah. We, ha- we are the strongest. Look at our numbers. Yeah. We have bigger and sharper swords. Let's go. Boasting. Giving yourself the confidence to face something really hard. We can do it. Our axes are bigger. We have we can do it. That is glorifying something. When we do that, when we glorify something else than Christ, it will always fall short. That's why after each quarter or each half or each moment or each battle, there needs to be like this boost. Come on, we can do it. Paul says it ends boasting. Because everyone boasts, everybody does, into something to be proud of, to give us confidence. It's why it's so popular for us in our mind to go back to something we used to do. You know, just, uh, it wasn't too long ago, I was in the garage. Talking about boasting, this is bad. (laughs) I opened up the box of all of my medals and trophies from, you think I'm gonna say high school, right? Fifth grade. Right? Okay. Why? I almost brought it, but it's so little you wouldn't be able to see it. But it's mine. I earned it. And it's not a participation award, by the way. Thank you very much. It was the fifth best goalie out of five. Ha! But that's what we do. We look back on the things. We, we look at our certificate. We, we look at our degrees. We look at these things. Boost us up. Where we don't, where we need to be glorifying not our past accomplishments or what we've done, our children, our careers, or any of that. It's boasting in Christ. Why? Because he saved us. When God sent Jesus on the cross, he was thinking of you on purpose. Sometimes I think it's real easy to say God saved you, all of you. And and we can get caught up in this crowd and thinking, oh, but me? Yes, you, by name. Dallas Jackson. He was thinking of you. Put your name in there. This boasting. In Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, Jeremiah, he's talking about all the things that the Lord is going to do. And this is where... He's he's prophesying that uh, the Babylonians are going to come in, and the Jewish people are going to just live this hard life because of their disobedience, captivity. And this is what Jeremiah nine twenty three and twenty four says. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things, I the Lord have spoken. See that? Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, the powerful in their power and the rich in their riches boast in God alone. And you you, you see this. He demonstrates his unfailing love. It's the same. It's, It's the Hebrew's word for the Greek word of what Paul is using. He brings justice and righteousness. What is he bringing justice and righteousness to? Go all the way back up to verse three of Ephesians two. It's God's anger and wrath. You see, all the way back in the Old Testament, God was preparing a way through Christ. So if you just quickly remember those three things that I told you the gospel is not, but sometimes what people think it is, the Christian heritage or the moralism, and then the third, the appeal to religion. See how those are false gospels? Because each one of those, you have to boast in something other than Christ. Paul is saying you you won't have to spend the rest of your life looking for strength. You won't have to spend the rest of your life Only trying to get A pluses on every test you ever take. He's saying you don't have to spend the rest of your life looking for strength in your relationships and the work, your salary, or the morality, or your religiosity, your family's pedigree. Paul's saying none of that. You don't need to be boasting in that. Because when you look at those things to pump you up, to boast in, if you look deep down inside, it's never good enough. And you know that. You know that deep down inside. A life looking for things to get pumped, on, pumped up on will only jump from one thing to the next. It's like a frog that jumps on a lily pad that sinks and has to continue to jump. But a restful life is a grace-filled life. Because if we, if we do this, if we do the opposite of this and we boast in our accomplishments, deep down inside what we think is, how is this going to work out for me? When things don't go well in your life, you'll turn to God and you'll say, well, I've done all these great things. I did all of this. Why hasn't God blessed me? It was all for you, God. You don't become a Christian. And and here's the line. Here's the the thought. You don't become a Christian to serve God. You want God to serve you. Because a life that boasts in Christ and, and his grace and his mercy will lead to a life of contentment. John Stott said this, do you believe that everything you have is a gift? Take an inventory, and if there's one thing or one person that you do not see as a gift, stop, start over. Grace, mercy. If you look at any one thing that is not a gift, start over. Or more, you deserve. Well, Lord, everything I have is yours, Lord. So if you... And if you're okay with that, then whenever you're, you're missing something that you think you deserve, you, you feel comfortable. But if, if, if you're boasting in other things, you think, well, didn't I work hard enough? If you find yourself getting angry at the Lord, why, Lord, why are you treating me this way? You're boasting in the things he's given you, not in him. You'll be contentment. You'll be well-rested. Or acceptance. The other one, acceptance. If you boast in Christ and Christ alone, you, you will feel acceptance. It's okay to be glad up front, just to be clear. It's okay to be glad that you work hard. It's okay to be glad and appreciate that you're productive or that you're smart. It's okay. But that line is a fine line. It can't be your gauge to value your life. If you find value in these things and you can just lift off the things... And and as you're going through this list of if any of those things on your list that you you are glad for because you don't want to say proud but you say glad because that's very Christian of you, right? I, I'm preaching to myself here. But if any of those things you you lose or you no longer have, will you still love God? And if you're wondering if they're more. Uh, uh, it's a difference between your, your personality. I just enjoy these things. And if you're unsure, if and if you want to argue with me after church, that's okay. Um, but, you know, you may quote the Bible. I, I remember talking to someone, and they quoted about, well, I'm not supposed to be a sluggard. I'm supposed to be an ant. Great. Good. Go crawl around in the dirt. I don't, I, you know but if you're finding your value in your work which is so i think for all of us in here it's so easy to do or what you have then you're boasting into that your your victory cry your pump up music is in other things you put too much value there and here's a test do you look down and this is the test that i have to do do you look down on others who do not have the same work ethic as you because if you do why do you hold your work ethic so high? Okay, what about money? If you enjoy making money and you want to see uh, your overall, how you value money, if it's in the correct place, do you give your money away freely? Or more, I think even more, do you look down on people who are on the side of the road with a sign and think, get a job? Or maybe it's education. Want to do another test? If you have tons of education, master, doctorates, et cetera, Do you look down on someone who barely passed and got a GED? Because you're holding that value above them. Okay, if you think I'm being unfair, because maybe I am, I'll pick on pastors. I'm pretty good at that. If you find value in the size of your church, how much you make, how many people come to your church and tell you that you're a better pastor than the guy down the street? Is that your value? I desire to be a good pastor, but that can't be my value. I desire to be a good husband. That can't be my value. I desire to be a good father. can't be my value. That doesn't mean, just because that can't be where my value comes from doesn't mean I don't try hard. doesn't mean you don't try hard. Why do you do what you do? And and for whose glory is it for? We want to measure up, and actually when we're measuring up, it's connecting to bringing glory to ourselves. And here's verse 10, and we'll end here, and verse 10 is so good that it could be a sermon in itself, but I'll cover it more. And this is what it is, just to remind us where we're off before my rabbit trail. Verse 9 left us by reminding us, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He has planned for us long ago. You notice the good things that He planned for us long ago is way after salvation, way after the recognition that we are God's masterpiece. And just quickly, I just want to touch on the masterpiece. It's, it's such a beautiful thing. The word masterpiece or workmanship, it may be in your Bible, is poema. Poema. And that's and our word for masterpiece and workmanship. But poema, what does that sound like in English? A poem? We are God's poetry in motion, if you will. It is something beautiful. It is something with a purpose. It is something to bring delight. So we are God's poem in motion. I was talking to a couple of friends about this thought. And here's what two of them said. One said, we are walking in a personal, individual poem being created for his presence. We are made by God on purpose, and it is beautiful, and that it is. And you can tell that was a female, because you can tell the next comment by a guy. So what you're saying, Dallas, is God is not only swinging a hammer to break me down all the time. Sometimes we are being created on paper with a pen. You see that? You, you are God's masterpiece. And since you are God's masterpiece, you can boast in the author, the king of kings. So just in closing, uh, as you look back some point this week and you consider your gospel story, your testimony, thinking about You were once a sinner, now saved by grace, that you were alienated ourselves from God, but it's through Christ. As you look back, and as you do that, as you take some time to do that, please do that. A couple of warnings. Please don't relive your sin. Either don't highlight it, saying, oh, the good old days. But also probably don't try to experience that same guilt again that that's not the purpose or that shame of sin that guilt and shame for believers in Christ was dealt with the cross but when you look back look back at it with grace and gratitude that you are no longer that person that where you were you're no longer there Looking back with so much thankfulness and joy that when you see others who are not followers of Christ, you don't look, out, look down at them with disdain, but with a memory that you were once that guy or girl. And maybe this morning you hear me talking about people who are not followers of Christ and think, wait a minute, maybe, maybe that's me. I invite you that today can be the day that you recognize that you were dead and alienated from God, but he sent Jesus. You confess your sins, and you believe that he is Lord of your life. And maybe this morning you're here, and you're thinking, oh, those three things that you mentioned that weren't the gospel, maybe I fit in those categories. The gospel is still for you, it is for me. We're gonna receive communion this morning. You are invited to receive communion with us if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. We don't have membership or anything like that. You have to be a believer. And as you do that, just, just thank God, boast in him. We're gonna sing a couple more songs. And, and just have this theme in your mind as we sing these songs together. Spurgeon wrote, we do not gather together on Sundays to remember simply the event and the person of Christ from long ago. We gather together on Sundays to acknowledge and embrace and sing to the presence of the Lord now. We are not at Jesus' funeral. We are at the celebration of a king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and for your word and so much here, Lord, and thank you for, first for your grace and your mercy, Lord, and I do pray for anyone in here who's not said yes to you, who's accepted this free gift, I pray today is the day. I pray for those of us who are believers in Christ. Will you help us not try to take credit for what you've done? Will you help us look at look at everything that we have as a gift? And mostly the gift of salvation that you saved us when we believed and we can't take credit from it. And Lord, when we boast, let us boast in you. Let our war cry or pump up song, whatever it is, whatever we want to call it, let it be unto you to glorify you. Lord, thank you that we are your masterpiece. That you created us anew in Christ. That we are poetry in motion. That you were intentional with us. That when you sent your son to die for our sins, you had our name on your mind. So Lord, as we sing more songs, we just, we just want to give you all the credit and glorify your name. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for raising us with Christ from the dead. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.